Do turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. Dorothy Sayers was one of the literary uh, figures of the mid-20th century. She wrote a number of detective novels. She also wrote a couple of Christian books. One of them was known uh, or was called Creed or Chaos. And in that book, she wrote this. Official Christianity of late years has been having what is known as a bad press. We're constantly assured that the churches are empty because preachers insist too much upon doctrine, dull dogma, as people call it. The fact is the precise opposite. It is the neglect of dogma that makes for dullness. The Christian faith is the most exciting drama that ever staggered the imagination of man and the dogma is the drama. It is the, dro the dogma that is the drama, not beautiful phrases or comforting sentiments or vague aspirations to loving kindness and uplift, nor the promise of something nice after death, but the terrifying assertion that the same God who made the world lived in the world and passed through the grave and gate to, of death itself. Show that to the heathen, and they may not believe it, but at least they may realize that here is something that a person might be glad to believe. The dogma is the drama. Now we find this principle, I think, illustrated in this account, the first account of the first sermon preached by the Apostle Paul. At least, this isn't his first sermon, but it's the first account of a sermon of Paul that we have in the book of Acts. It's therefore something that is critical for us to examine. I have the notes of my first sermon, but nobody wanted to put them in the Bible. This one is in the Bible, and therefore is of some significance to us as we study it this evening. And it's absolutely crucial, I think, to uh, read this sermon because of what it tells us about early Christianity, the early Christian movement. Uh, there's a bit of historical introduction to it as Paul uh, leaves Paphos on the coast of Cyprus and makes his way to Perga in Asia Minor. The significance of mentioning these two places is, I think, simply this, that uh, Paphos on Cyprus was noted for its temple to Venus, the goddess of love, with its worship involving temple prostitution, as it did then. And he travels to Perga, which was famous for a rather less significant temple dedicated to the goddess Diana, another goddess of love. In other words, Paul is moving from one center of paganism to another center of paganism. You need to understand as we come to these verses that Christianity has not been around for 2,000 years. There is no history to Christianity. There are no uh, churches. There is nothing significant in the history books regarding the Christian faith, it has come out of the blue. Where does it come from? What are its uh, credentials? What is its pedigree? Is it something to be taken seriously or not? And here is this man, Paul, who is unknown, an unknown figure at this stage in the game, probably unknown to most Christian people at this stage in the game. And here he is speaking and articulating this Christian message for the people. And... Uh, we're told that when he gets to this place, Pisidian Antioch, one of the 16 Antiochs, it's a bit confusing when you read about Antioch in the New Testament, 
uh, one of the 16 cities with that name. Uh, it was a prominent Roman colony. It has significant political and economic influence in the area. It has a very large Jewish population. And so on the Sabbath day, Saul, Paul, who was a rabbi by training and a professor of religion, really, in the University of Jerusalem, goes into the synagogue and sits down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, as is customary in the synagogue, the ruler of the synagogue sent a message uh, to Saul, his, Paul, and his companions, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of encouragement for the people, then please say it. Now, the background is that in synagogue worship, uh, there is... The, uh, the use of the reading of the law, and then someone would be asked to come and give an exposition of that particular part of the Scriptures. Now, uh, just in passing, I want to say this. It is the practice of the early Christians in their work to go first of all to the synagogue, to go first of all to the Jewish people in order to articulate their message. This was a quite deliberate, self-conscious practice of the apostles because it is a conviction of the early Christians that in fact this message that we hold to is for the Jew first and also for the Gentiles. In other words, most of us in this room who are Gentile by ancestry and by birth are the also-rans. We are the also in that equation. We, 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 we run on the heels of, we, we hold on to the skirts of uh, the Jews as their message, the message that is for them and has always been for them, has come to us and we have embraced it. We're, we're fulfilling, if you like, that prophetic picture that you find in the prophecy of Isaiah when people uh, from all over the world hang on to the, the, the coattails of a Jew and ask them the way of salvation, as the Lord Jesus said once to a Samaritan, an Israelite, uh, one of the northern tribes uh, that, that has long since been lost, he said, salvation is of the Jews. So this was a self-conscious policy. And uh, he goes to the synagogue and he expounds the reading for that day. And the theme of his sermon is a, a theme of generosity, the generosity and grace of God to Israel, first of all. So I want to unpack what he says here in four headings that I'll try to be as brief as possible. First of all, God is gracious in his election of Israel. God is gracious in his election. Do you notice how he starts with his emphasis on the choice of Israel, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. In other words, he's saying that the people of Israel are in a covenant relationship with God, a special relationship with God, a relationship which God established. He took the initiative. And he uses a word here uh, in the Hebrew, from the Hebrew Scriptures that we find in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power. God chose you. God brought you out. God did this great thing for you. And this idea of the election of Israel, this choice of Israel is one of the Bible's main themes. The scripture from old to new is full of this theme of God's choice, which is unexpected and unearned. Let me read you again from Deuteronomy chapter 7. 
It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In other words, God's choice of them is not down to their prominence, not down to their size. God's choice of them lies entirely on the love and faithfulness of God, the promises God has made. And when you come to the Christian scripture, you find the same emphasis as, as Christians are brought into this family, this covenant family of God, as the also-rans, as I've mentioned. We find the same emphasis as on the love and faithfulness of God. So when the Apostle Paul is writing to a church in Corinth, he reminds them, he says, Consider your calling, brothers and sisters. For not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose, same word, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in his presence. This doctrine of election humbles us. It crushes us. It breaks us down. This doctrine of election puts us in our place. It reminds us of who we are before a great and mighty God. We are His, but we are His by His choice. We are His, but we are His by His decision. We are His, but we are His by His own love and affection that He has displayed to us freely, without coercion, without any foresight of our faith or our response. In spite of our rebellion and our rebellious ways, we are His by His gracious election. God is gracious in the election of Israel. Secondly, God is gracious in his redemption of Israel. The apostle goes on. These promises, the promises to the patriarchs, to the fathers of Israel, found their fulfillment in that period of slavery in Egypt and their exodus from Egypt. This took place about 450 years after they'd been enslaved there. And during that time, the apostle says, God made the people great. That is, they increased in number. From a few tribes, they multiplied in number. They became a great people, maybe as many as two million people in Egypt. And then at that point, we're told, verse 16, with an uplifted arm, he led them out of Egypt. This big story of the Exodus is central to the heritage of Israel to, these, to this day. The Passover celebrates this great event as God brings them out of their captivity and brings them into the liberty of the children of God. And look at verse 18. For 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness. Now there's a textual matter here that I need to raise and that is in relation to the translation here. The word to put up with in the sense of enduring or putting up with or tolerating someone for their bad behavior is only one letter different from the word for to care for someone, like a nurse caring for a sickly child. And it could be, it could be that the reference is, as the English Standard Version puts it, a reference to God tolerating Israel, as, it, as he no doubt did during those 40 years of inconsistent belief, 
while they were in the desert, in the wilderness. Which is why a whole generation died in the wilderness, because of their disobedience. But in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 31, we read a different emphasis. Here, it refers to the wilderness, where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you, as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Now that verb in Deuteronomy can also go either way. But the context there and the context here, you notice, is uh, on the emphasis of the generosity and the graciousness of God. And so I think perhaps it would be better to say that what is being said here is probably the other word, and that is that God, in his dealings with Israel, was like a, a nurse with a child. I have the mental image of a nurse, a children's nurse perhaps, pouring her time, compassion, energy, care into a child and meeting her needs, being the child's needs, being there to serve the child in its need. And the picture of God, this is an image God uses in the Old, in the, in the Old Testament of himself, who pours out his compassion in his care for his people, Israel. God is gracious in his redemption of Israel. Thirdly, God is gracious for his, in his provision for Israel. The apostle goes on to say that after redeeming them from Israel, he gave them gifts. He gave them judges. And then he gave them a king. He gave them a king they wanted, a king they'd requested. Saul, the son of Kish. Paul passes over the story of their repeated apostasies during the period of the judges. Instead, he, can, he focuses on the generosity and grace of God. It was, it was Israel's sins that necessitated the judges. But Paul only mentions the gift of judges to bring order where there was chaos. It was Israel's sin in requesting a king like the nations round about. And yet Paul emphasizes here only the good pleasure of God in giving them a king to bring order out of the chaos. They asked for a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man from the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. Now, as he talks about the provision of God, I want you to notice he's moving it all very, very quickly, skimming over great chunks of the Hebrew Scriptures in order to get to a particular person, to some one person whose place in the entire Scripture is so foundational and fundamental. He wants to get to David. He raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Now we've been studying the book of Samuel in the mornings here, and we've seen the great overlap between the life of Saul and the life of David for a long period, very complicated period. The Apostle Paul doesn't deal with any of that this morning. He's dismissed my entire sermon series in a phrase. Well, I guess he gets to do that because he's an apostle, and, that, and I'm not, but he's, he just skips all of that stuff. So get the sermon series to find out what's in between the words that, that, that uh, Saul uses here. But his point is, the point he wants to get us to is that David is primarily God's good gift to Israel. And God actually announced to Saul that he was turning from him to seek out a man after his own heart. Now we need to be realistic here when we use that language let's not for one minute think this David you know is just kind of pristine clean cut perfect kind of guy uh, 
David could be ruthless. David was at times barbaric. David was not only the commander-in-chief of the Israelite army, David was also the sinner-in-chief of Israel. And yet the scripture says that he delighted God. He delighted God's heart. Because God saw the man's heart. And in spite of many sins in his life, in spite of going wrong in the end of his life, God saw in the heart of David a heart for God. Here was a man who wanted to know God. Here's a man who gave us the biggest book we have in the Bible, the book of Psalms, and we sing from it, the songbook of the people of God, in which he captures all the emotions of the people of God in their variety, and, and he puts words to our emotions and enables us to articulate to God, in God's language, the things that we're feeling and going through and sensing and trying to understand in our lives. God is calling this man who wants to know God, not superficially, not casually, personally, passionately. Everything David does, he does passionately, and he wants to know God passionately. Through David, God ushers in the golden age of Israel's history. As David expands the boundaries of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, establishes its most prosperous period. David, the great warrior, the great shepherd, the great poet, king. God makes a covenant with David, a covenant that lasts to this day and will last into all eternity. And in that covenant, he gave a promise to David that his seed would come, from his seed would come God's son, a king like him. And that king would reign as David's son and David's Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, writes David, sit at my right hand. So the commendation of David may well be meant to set us up, typologically may be able to set us up for understanding that David's descendant, the Messiah, uh, would come in his name and come to do what? Well, that brings us to the fourth point. God is gracious in his salvation of Israel. We have a, there's a thing over in the UK called the Reduced Shakespeare Company. And the Reduced Shakespeare Company can do all of Shakespeare's plays in 90 minutes. Some of you who suffered learning Shakespeare at school might wish that, that even that is too long. But they, they, there you go. Well, what Paul has done in this little sermon is he's compressed all the 39 books of the Hebrew Scriptures, all the Law and the Prophets, from which he has had the reading that day in the synagogue. He's compressed it all into about 30 seconds. That's an amazing feat. Now, I know that all we have here are notes of a sermon that could have lasted a longer time. Uh, and I, I like to think that Saul was an even longer preacher than I am. And uh, he, he, he probably was. But he's, here it is all compressed here. And what he's saying in this sermon is that all of these scriptures, all of these scriptures point towards something. They point towards a person. To David, yes. And through David, to someone else, someone more crucial. You notice this. He, he sees that this record of salvation history, God's work in history, is going somewhere. And he summarizes the gospel by quoting from the Hebrew scripture, proceeding to David, and from David going to the Messiah. The greatest gift of God to Israel, he says, is the Savior, Yeshua, the Savior, Jesus, descended from David. He presents Jesus 
the Messiah as the climax of biblical history. God has brought a Savior to Israel in accordance with his promise to David. You can read that promise in the book of Samuel. When your days, God is talking to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who will come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. And God goes on to say, your house, your kingdom, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever, he says. In other words, what God's promise to David consisted of was two things. One, that there would be a continuation of David's line. And two, there would be a renewal of David's line. David's line was to go down into decay and and destroy itself by ungodly kings and so on, and ultimately almost be eliminated altogether. And then Yeshua, Jesus of Nazareth, comes along, a descendant of David, the king of the Jews, and renews the line of David. And because the the Lord Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, becomes human, takes on humanity, and that humanity is descended from David, We can say to this day that a descendant of David sits on David's throne. That God's promise to David is absolutely sure and fulfilled. The throne that David is looking for is ultimately not a throne in a geographical area in the Middle East. It is the throne of heaven itself. David's son and heir sits on that throne. The man, Christ Jesus, sits on that throne. That is precisely what we find when we come into the Christian scriptures in Luke chapter 1, when the angel is announcing the birth of Jesus to Mary. He tells her she's going to conceive and bear a child. That was new news to her. And she was going to call his name Yeshua, the one who would take people into the promised land, as Joshua did in the Old Testament. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. That thrilled Mary, and she understood what that meant, because she starts to sing about it. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Or Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, when he's thinking about what's going on in the birth of John the Baptist and and the birth of Mary's child, he says that the Lord God of Israel has visited and redeemed his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation in the house of David, his servants. And then John the Baptist himself, the forerunner, the last great Hebrew prophet, talks about in his prophecy one who's coming to give knowledge of salvation to the people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Or the shepherds, when the angels are giving their news to him, what's their news? It is that in the city of David a Savior is born who is the Messiah, the Lord. And when an old man called Simeon holds the baby Jesus in his arms and he's been waiting for the consolation, the comforting of Israel, what does he say? He says, my eyes have seen your salvation, the salvation of God. We need to see that great theme. and We cannot disconnect the Christian scripture from the Hebrew scriptures. They are one piece. They are welded together. They are interwoven with each other. 
that you cannot go from one to the other and separate them because there's one scripture promise fulfillment the kingdom Jesus preached was David's kingdom the throne in which Jesus sits is David's throne the good news of the gospel Paul says is that Jesus is a son who is descended from David raised from the dead and proclaimed the son of God now you see everything in the history of Israel is leading up to the coming of the Messiah the great salvation of sinners that he would accomplish when he died and rose again the, the apostle goes on to talk about death and resurrection of Jesus the story behind Jesus of course is God's story this whole text is saturated with God 16 times Paul presses home the truth God is the central actor in the history of Israel God is central to the activity of Israel he is a great and glorious God he is the God of creation creation and what what the Apostle is saying to these people and saying to us tonight is know him deal with him reckon with him factor him into your thinking into your life this great God who has acted in creation but also acted in the history of Israel reckon on him he is working he is the main worker in history he is the main actor in history he is the explanation for and the, the, the meaning of everything, everything, virtually all our communication media and educational enterprises are superficial because they miss out on this fundamental thing that lies at the very heart of reality, at the very heart of reality. This makes sense of history, of our history, of our personal lives. The apostle is saying to these people, if you, don't want, if you want not to be superficial, you want to be serious about life, the world, and the universe. If you want to be Christian, then you must believe that God is the main actor in the drama. History is a drama. There is a script. These characters were playing their parts and saying their lines in accordance with the script of redemption that God was working out for Israel and through Israel for the nations, as he's always intended it to be. This is good news for the Jew. It's good news for us also. It's a good news that there is a Savior. And what does this salvation consist of? Well, he sums it up in these verses. Did you notice? He sums it up as the forgiveness of sin. One thing that, that bars us from having a living relationship with God, one thing that brought David down again and again, the one thing that brings every human being down, no matter how good they are, how polite they are, how nice they are, how educated they may be. The one thing that will ultimately banish us from the presence of God, sin. What is this salvation from? It is a salvation from sin. The forgiveness of sin. So that tonight you, no matter what your record, no matter what your past, no matter what you think of yourself or other th others think of you, you can walk out of this place tonight knowing that your sins are pardoned forgiven, rubbed out, forgotten, and that you have received the gift of eternal life and are part of this kingdom that will go on forever because you belong to David's greater son, to Jesus, the Savior. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that this evening as we have thought of this great 
passage, this great sermon that connects up the dots of the Scriptures, both the Hebrew and the Christian Scriptures, and shows us that there is one word from God, one great dramatic story, and that tonight we as bit part players in this drama have received our lines for this week as we take our part in the story and go out to talk about, to think about, to serve the great God, the God of glory, you who are the one who has been working from the beginning and you who have worked supremely, not only in redeeming Israel from Egypt and that wonderful event through Moses, but now supremely delivering men and women, Jew and Gentile, from sin, creating a new Israel, a bigger, bigger Israel, where even Gentiles like us are included and folded and made part of your purposes, your promises, and your redemption. Great God of glory, draw near to us tonight, we pray. And in the person of the Lord Jesus, will you wash away our sin and renew our relationship with you. Draw us to your heart. Draw us to your heart. Give us a heart for you. Make us people who know God, focus on him, see him, his handiwork, recognize what you are doing in the world. Give us a heart for you, we pray. In Jesus' strong name, amen.